you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Amen. Hey, everyone, and welcome. Uh, whether it's your first time here, you're joining us online on our podcast. So glad you're here. As you can see, we're moving through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which is, by the way, in case you didn't know, it is the most translated piece of literature, the most translated book in the history of the world. How about that? And now while we're at it here in Trivia Land, did you know what the second most translated book of all time is in history? Anybody want to venture a guess? It's Pinocchio. Pinocchio, this is true, I didn't make this up, my nose didn't just grow right there. Uh, Pinocchio is the second most translated book in history outside the Bible. It's been translated, guess how many languages, into 270 languages Pinocchio has, yeah. But do you know how many Mark has been translated into? Now it's hard to get a final count because the number is actually always increasing, but while Pinocchio is at 270, Mark has been translated into more than 3,000 languages. 3,000 languages, and I think that's amazing. Some of you might think the same thing. And, you know, when I hear that, it kind of makes me want to sit up a little more and hear a little more about what Mark is saying a little more. Because how could, we should ask, how could a relatively unknown first century Jewish person write literally the best-selling, most translated book in human history? How could he do that? And I think that no matter where you are, no matter where you're coming from today, that if someone had written the the best-selling, most translated book in history, I think that no matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from, I'd want to know what that book was all about. And I think I may even want to read it for myself if I hadn't read it before. So let's ask then, well, what did Mark discover? What what happened to him? What did he see that caused him to put something so so dynamic, so history-shaping? We're still talking about it today. What did he put at the center of his little book, it shot it at the top. 
Years ago, I, I led this uh, conversation group at the University of Texas campus just down the road. Yeah, Hookham, and I was doing a ton of work with college students back then. And it was, it was back then, in that period, I really began, maybe some of you have done this, I really began investigating uh, other world faiths, other faith systems, and so I began to read a ton and investigate a ton. And in this conversation group, we had, I, I, if I recall correctly, an atheist, uh, an agnostic, Protestant Christian, Roman Catholic Christian, uh, a Buddhist, and a Hindu. And if you're saying, man, that sounds kind of interesting, well, number one, you're my people, thank you very much. Uh, but number two, it really was. It, w- it was super interesting. And so to keep the conversation going and not sound totally ignorant or offend unnecessarily, I had to do some, some reading when it came to other faiths and faith systems. So, so I did it. So I, I picked up a copy of the, the Quran and, and I wrote it. I read the Gita. It's sort of a, a you know, special piece of Hindu scripture. Read the Buddhist scriptures or a portion of those. And, then, and most, faith, most faith systems I discovered, and you may know this, have fascinating origin stories. And one that has a particularly lovely origin story is, is the story of Buddhism, which, by the way, is the fastest growing religion in the United States today. But if you didn't know uh, Buddhism's origin story, it's about a young man named Gautama. And Gautama was this, the son of this uh, 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 prince. He was a prince, uh, son of a king in India, a wealthy family. And his father had given him this sheltered life. But, uh, but Gautama wanted to see the world, was, uh, become dissatisfied. And he decided to take four trips outside the palace, which Buddhists call now the four distressing sites. And, and the first night as he went out, he saw sickness. Then he saw age, an elderly person. Then he saw death. He saw a corpse. And then he saw a holy man. And these distressed him. And after all four of those, he sat down under a tree to figure out the meaning and the mystery of life. And he sat there for a long time, wasn't going to move until he figured it out. And a bunch of crazy stuff happened, if you know the story, but he did it. And when he figured out what he believed was the key to life, the mystery of life, what life was all about, he stood up and he announced to his disciples the four noble truths. And people began to follow him. They called him the Buddha, the enlightened one. And that's more or less how Buddhism began. Now, it's a lovely story. It's beautiful, actually, if you, if you read it for yourself. But there's a crucial difference. Uh, there's a fundamental difference. I'll put it like this. There is a permanently irreconcilable difference between Buddhism and Christianity. Here it is. All the historical events surrounding the, the Buddha's life, so Buddhism's founding, is to show you how the Buddha learned a way, he believed, to salvation, a way. But in Christianity, the events of Jesus' life are the way of salvation. And here's what that means. At its essence, Buddhism says, you just need a teacher. But Christianity says, no, you need a savior. You need a savior. You need to be saved and rescued from yourself. And it's not through more teaching, although teaching is super helpful. It's through a person. And Mark, the gospel writer Mark says, his name is Jesus. Name is Jesus. And so what we see Mark showing us in his best-selling, most translated work of all time, is far, far less of a teacher, although Jesus was the master teacher. You sort of got to go over to Matthew's gospel to get that. But Mark shows us what he discovered, a Savior come into the world to do for us what we cannot, could not do for ourselves. So we should ask, well, then how can we see that? If that's what's at the core, at the center, how can we see that? How can we see what Mark saw? I want to try to show you three ways, three things that will help you see what Mark saw. Number one, number one we're going to take a look at today, that, that, that there is an offense that demands a question. Second, there's a question that demands an answer. And finally, we'll see there's a single word that answers every question. An offense, a question, 
and an answer here today, all from the Gospel of Mark. Here we go, number one. Let's look at this offense that demands a question. What is the offense? Well, I don't think it's too hard to spot. Let's go trying to find it. Let's begin in Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Here we go. Here goes the story. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, this was his, likely his base of ministry in his early days, the people heard that he had come home. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. What did he preach? We don't know. That's not Mark's focus. So he's preaching, there's a crowd, and then something remarkable happens. It says, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Of course, this is crazy. And by the way, you should know that even the most skeptical Bible historians all acknowledge this is one of the earliest earliest Jesus stories and that it's highly likely that this account in Mark's is actually the eyewitness account of this man on this mat. So what in the world are these guys all after? What are they after? Well, at first it seems like everybody gets it, right? Everybody gets it. It seems obvious except Jesus doesn't get it. Verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, and if you hadn't read ahead, you'd be expecting something else. But he says, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> oh my gosh. Let me get this straight. Jesus looks at this man, and instead of saying, friend, I see that you are one of the four distressing sights. Right? You're a person unable to walk. Instead of saying, I see you're in tremendous pain. I see that you're suffering. Isn't it terrible what's happened to you? Isn't it terrible how people have treated you? No, no. Instead, he looks at this suffering man, square in the soul. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, aren't you supposed to be the compassionate one? Like that professor I had in college said, you were only compassionate, only inclusive. You never excluded anyone. You're only to that news article I read on that, on that, on that website said that you were only inclusive, only compassionate, only tender. This isn't that. This is what's the word? Oh yeah. Offensive. What in the world is Jesus getting at right here? When I was just out of college, I went to work for a ministry that reached professional athletes. And when I say I work for them, what I mean is I drove the vans for them. And I carried bags for pro athletes at conferences and in the airport and their luggage and all that. But one day, uh, all the staff of this ministry was out on this houseboat on, on Lake Travis. It was a businessman's houseboat. It was super nice. And we were out there. And the owner of the houseboat uh, had these jet skis on the back of the boat. Now, if you've been in Mosaic for a while, are you thinking, man, is this the same jet ski story as he told last year? The answer is no. This is a different one. And after you hear this, you'll know you should definitely, certainly never invite me on your houseboat or give me the keys of your jet ski again. But so we were out there on the boat, and the, we were about to take these jet skis out, and the owner said, listen, I've got two rules. Number one, these things go really fast, so I'm asking you to keep a 50-foot rule at all times. Please don't get within 50 feet of the other guy out there. And number two, he says, it's getting dark, so please stay close to the boat. So I said, okay, and my friend Mike, okay, and we went out that we were having fun, but way sooner rather than later, we forgot all about the 50-foot rule, and we were getting as close as we possibly could to each other. Who could ride out, go as fast as they could, break and swerve and spray at the last moment? 
this guy can. So and Mike and I went out and we wanted to see how close we could cut it. And, and, and by this time, the 50-foot rule had been long forgotten. And we'd gone so far out from the boat that we could not hear all the people on the boat yelling at us, imploring us to stop. So here we were going full speed, trying to you know, break and swerve and spray as fast and cut it as close as possible. When on one of these swerves, I accidentally, unintentionally hit the power button. The kill switch, which if you don't know anything about these things, it's the worst thing I could have done. It means that there is no power and you can't maneuver. It'd be like putting a car at high speed on a highway, putting a car in neutral, taking out the steering wheel, taking out the brakes and saying, good luck, good luck. Keep flying toward the other guy. So I rammed Mike's, my friend Mike's jet ski at this super high speed. And thankfully he swerved and his jet ski absorbed most of the blow and, you know, parts flying up in the air. But I still rode over the top of his and, and re- nailed him with the front, the nose of the jet ski right in his backside. And he flew off, went flying through the air, landed face down and floated in the water. I thought, my God, I've, I've killed him. My life is over. You know, but thankfully he, he looked up after a minute and he said, man, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? Which coincidentally was the exact same thing my pastor said to me the next week when he pulled me into his office to give me like the worst tongue lashing I'd ever gotten. And I deserved it, of course. And this pastor did not ask if I was okay. He didn't ask if Mike was okay. And Mike was okay. And you should know this, except for, and specifically, this is true, a massive purple swollen bruise on the left side of his backside. And Mike, if you're hearing this again today, I, I'm sorry. You know, he's a pastor in Phoenix. So once again, I'm sorry. But my pastor told me this that day, and I've never forgotten it. He said, your problem isn't that you're going to pay back every dime to this multimillionaire, which you are, by the way. Your problem isn't that you've embarrassed me, yourself, or the ministry. But your main problem is that you have a problem with God. You've got a problem with God. And that's why this happened. What was he getting at with me in the moment? The same thing, I think, I think that Jesus is getting at with this man on this mat in this moment. Jesus knows something that this man doesn't know that you might not know or that you may know, but you've refused to believe. What Jesus knows and what you should know is this, that this man, that we have a much bigger problem than just our physical condition alone, which is this. A person's main problem, a person's first problem, is not their suffering, it's their sin. It's their problem with God. Problem with God. Maybe you say, Morgan, this is ridiculous. This sounds like victim blaming, shaming, to which I would say, no, it's not. You say, Morgan, well, this sounds at the very least like you're ignoring this man's problem, condition, suffering, to which I would say, Jesus does it. Doesn't he heal the man in a minute? Yes, he does. And by the way, any ministry done in the name of Jesus doesn't ignore human suffering, doesn't ignore people's pain and problems. We know who the people of Jesus are by how they love their neighbor. Well, you say, Morgan, well, it's not loving to talk about someone's sin. To which I would say, well, if Jesus is a being of perfect love, then this is loving. It has to be. Well, you say, well, then after all of that, at the very least, it's offensive. To which I would say, I told you so. I told you so. He's not excusing anything that's been done to you, nor does it mean that you shouldn't seek, especially in cases of a kind of abuse, to stop that abuse or violence from happening again. But if this is true, and I, and I believe it is, then actually, if you'll stay with me, this is so, so empowering. And here's why. You can't 
do a lot about what's happened to you, can you? You can't do it. I wish you could. I wish I could change stuff from your past. I wish I could change stuff from my past. I wish I could change how people have treated you, but you can't change that. But you can do something about who you are, who you are. And when the Bible talks about something like sin, it's not just referring to specific bad things that people do like lust or lying, as important as those are. No, our real issue in life, what my pastor was trying to help me see that day, was that thing in me on that jet ski was my real issue but blown up now to a cosmic level. My real problem, it's a problem I have with God. I need help with that. You help with that. My real issue is ignoring God, any claim on my life, any claim on your life in any area. Who has God to tell me who I can and can't sleep with? Who's God to tell me what I can and can't do with our money? Uh, who's God to tell me I should forgive my parents, person? And who has God to tell me that he and I might not be okay how we are? I need help with that. Who is he? Ah, that's the offense. And so it demands we ask this question now. You, you kind of heard me hint at it. Who does Jesus think he is? Who does he think he is? Who does Jesus think he is? Let's look at that for a moment. That was this, the offense. It demands this question. Who does he to talk to us like this? Number two, but it's a question that demands an answer. So let's look at the question. I'll be a little bit briefer with this point. Here's where the question emerges in the passage. Verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow, they won't even call him by his name, this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, of course, it's fascinating that this is the question that's asked that they're thinking because this question right here is the question that is asked the most about Jesus in the course of his ministry. Over and over again, I'm about to show you. In various ways, people ask incredible variations centered around this single, single question. Uh, Mark 4, the next chapter, even his own disciples ask, who is he? Who is this? Let me give you just a fraction of the ways now that this single question is posed and asked throughout the gospel narratives. Uh, Look at Mark 6. People are asking, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And what does it say? And they took what? Offense at him. Who does he think he is? Mark 11, while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who do you think you are, Jesus? Mark 15, too. Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Who do you think you are? Matthew 9, when the Pharisees saw this, when Jesus was doing, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher, again, they won't name him, Eat with tax collectors and sinners. Who does he think he is? Look to his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? You know, it's a fair question. Every mom asked it, but he's still, it's it's asking, who do you think you are? Luke 6, some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Who do you think you are? Uh, Gospel of John, a few of these. So they asked the man who was healed, who is this fellow? Won't name him. Who told you to pick it up and walk? They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Who does he think he is? Finally, John, the last one, John, in the gospel, John said, the Jews there were amazed. And they asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Who does he think he is to talk to us like that? And I could go on and on and and to paraphrase that old movie for all you, you, you boomers out there, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Who is this guy, right? I mean, there you go, bone today. All right, there you go. 
You're welcome. Gen X, Gen Y, don't hold your breath. That's it. That's the only, only movie reference, unless the spirit moves, and then you'll be all included. But all these verses are just trying to show you is how G- people, excuse me, people really reacted to Jesus who were there. They didn't just nod their heads. They didn't say, oh, if you're saying, I would have accepted him, I would have believed. No, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. The people reacted to him just how we react to him, how that celebrity, famous person reacts to him. Who does Jesus think he is to tell me what to do? Who is he to talk to me in my position today, in my situation today, maybe even in my own suffering today, about how I'm living, how I'm relating to him or how I'm loving others? This question is asked, and it stands. But I want you to look now, now, one layer down, at not just that it is asked, but I want us to see here, Who is asking the question in the first place? Because if we'll see the kind of person who asks this question primarily, who does Jesus think he is? I think we can get the right answer to the question and see perhaps what Mark is trying to show us. Who specifically asked the question, who does Jesus think he is? Here it says, verse 6, now some teachers of the law were sitting there. Now here they're called teachers of the law. Other places they're called the scribes. It's the same group. Now also, of course, the people who ask us are, are the Pharisees, sometimes Sadducees. But the point is, they're all learned people. They're all educated people. They're all influencers. They're all the cultural elite. Most were wealthy. What are they so upset about? Oh, here it is. In the end, finally, number three, they're upset about the single word <laughs> that answers every question. And here it is. Here comes the word. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? A good question, Jesus. We don't know. We're still thinking about it. And while they're thinking about it, he does this. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to forgive sins. And there it is. It's the word Jesus claims for himself, the word authority. He claims authority over the human body, the human heart, the human mind, the human condition. That's the real thing, hear me, that was lurking in these people's hearts. It's their issue with his authority. Why? Why was this the rub with this group? Well, you should notice Mark makes this clear as he goes throughout his gospel that Jesus, Jesus has constant conflicts, and this is the first one that comes up in Mark. We'll look at another one next week. His constant conflicts were not with the weak, not with the poor, not with the outcast, not with the, the hurting. Because you'll notice this man on this mat was not offended by Jesus saying that to him. Why should we be? But who does Jesus always have conflict with? It's always with the educated, the rich, the poor, those in power. Think about this one example later in the Gospel of Mark. I think it's chapter 11. When Jesus comes in and he, he cleanses the temple, you remember the story, he drives out the money changers, those who were, who were exploiting a system, exploiting the poor, overcharging them. What did he do? Well, when he, when he sees the situation, he gets like really angry, doesn't he? And he overturns the tables of the money changers, of the powerful, of the rich, of the elite. And what happens? They go nuts. He's touched their money. He's touched their idol. Well, why do they go nuts? Well, because the rich, the powerful, the educated, they're not used to having someone overturn their tables in life. See that? 
They're not used to having people in authority over them to extend the metaphor. They're not used to not being on top. But hear me, that's everyday living for the poor. You know this. Every day the poor get their tables turned over every day. Their stuff gets taken every day, stolen every day. They get ground into the ground under under bad laws, or they're just ignored every day. They're not on top. They don't pretend to be in charge. They don't pretend to have it all together. And Jesus acknowledges this, by the way, because at one point he is point blanked by some of John the Baptist's disciples, and they ask him the same question. Who do you think you are? Are you really the son of God? What proof can you give us that you have authority to do these things? Jesus says, here's my proof. He says, go back and tell them. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to who? Who does it say? Come on. The poor. He says, the the proof of who I am is that the poor believe. The deaf hear, the sick are cleansed. Notice what he doesn't say will ever be proof that he's the son of God. That the rich receive him. That the wealthy receive him. That's your professor, educated professor at UT or some university with four degrees acknowledges Jesus. That the rich celebrity acknowledges him. That the people who make the Marvel movies all celebrate Jesus. That the wealthy receive him. That the popular kid at your school believes in Jesus. No. Now, of course, that can happen. Look at, look at Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. There were some wealthy people who followed Jesus. But it's the exception in the Gospels, not the rule. The mark of a people, I believe, the mark of a church where Jesus really has authority will be marked by the fact that the poor receive him. They minister to the poor, not necessarily the rich. And anyone, listen, who would receive him, Jesus goes on to say, anyone who would receive him must become poor in spirit to acknowledge they don't have what it takes to save themselves. But those who have their tables neat, their tables nice, their tablecloths laid out, silverware, Norman Rockwell, all in a row, they've always had a harder time receiving Jesus. And so they say things like this. Famous talk show hosts say this. Celebrities, pundits, religion experts say this. The important thing about Jesus is just the teaching. The important part is just trying to become a better person. We don't need saving. We just need teaching. And so these what? Teachers of the law are asking him, well, what sign can you give us? What's your proof you are who you say you are? Where does your authority come from? What watertight argument, Jesus, can you give us so that we can believe? What does Jesus do? <laughs> he doesn't give them a teaching. He shows them a sign. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. The man got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of all of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now listen, I know some of you get real nervous with that word authority. You're feeling nervous about it now. But look, look, look. Look at what Jesus leverages his authority for. It's for healing. It's for caring. It's for compassionate service, loving ministry. And one day, one day, he would lay all of it down. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down by my own accord. The one with all authority, the one who created authority, allowed himself to be the victim of corrupt authority to transform how we even see power and authority and how you and I see the power, authority, our Heavenly Father. I want to tell you this today, if you've never heard it before. 
to come under God's authority, the authority of Jesus of Nazareth, in the end, it will be healing for you. Be healing for you, just like it was healing for this man here. Didn't Tolkien say that the hands of the king are healing hands? And by this shall the rightful king be known. I tell you, the kingly touch of Jesus of Nazareth brings healing back into our lives. When I was a freshman in college, I, I, came, play, I came to play baseball at the University of Houston. Some of you may know this. I came with a condition, though, that I didn't, didn't dare tell our trainer. Since the age of 14, I had this intermittent, debilitating back pain. Been a doctor's therapy, x-rays, all that stuff, painkillers of all kinds. Uh, it started when I was 14. It came and went without notice or explanation. The best I could do was like to really stretch, get in super good shape, and it kind of helped manage it. But at the collegiate level and certainly at, at the pro level, sometimes you hide your injuries. You just do, especially when you're not a starter. You don't want to give anybody any reason to not play you or to cut you or to cut your scholarship. And so there I was, a freshman, trying to earn a starting spot. This pain came back with a vengeance, and I had not told anyone about it. So one night after a practice, and a practice ended, I walked into the little campus meeting of Christians at the University of Houston, where two weeks earlier, the same group, same meeting, I had encountered Jesus. I'd been born again in this really miraculous way. Serenity was authority. He became Lord of my life. And at the end of the meeting, that night, this pastor, I'd met him like once, he called me out of the crowd, and he said, Morgan, he said, God is telling me we need to pray for your legs. Now, probably some of you have been in a meeting where somebody says something that seems real weird. Oh, they're making something up. So I thought at first, I was like, you're nuts, buddy, right? I mean, it's like, it's my back. It's not my legs, but okay, sure. I'll go forward. You put me on the spot. And it's my back that needs help, but I was walking, as I was walking forward, he said this. I've never forgotten it. He says, you know, sometimes back pain can be caused by one leg being longer or shorter than the other. It's just like this chiropractic reality, the accumulated effect of the issue over time causes pain. And sure enough, I sat down, I looked, extended my legs, and one leg was slightly shorter than the other. They were uneven. Now, I wasn't like on stilts or some like foot dramatic difference, right? But they, in that moment, I saw it, and they laid their hands on me. They prayed for me in the name of Jesus. And I watched as my, other, my one leg grew out even with the other one. Didn't feel anything. No heat, no tingling, no angelic chorus, no flashes of lightning, just a feeling-free miracle. You say, Morgan, well, did you make it up? It was like a trick they pulled. Well, listen, I walked out of there. That was March 12, 1995. I never had back pain again. So if it was a trick, it was a pretty good trick that no doctor could fix. And I wasn't healed, hear me. I wasn't healed by the teaching of Buddha, revelation of Muhammad, grace of Krishna. I was healed by the authority of the name of Jesus. Let me tell you, let his kingly touch come into your life, your space, your heart right now and see what he might do. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and I'm asking for your grace and for your help. For your grace and for your help. Lord, in our lives, we so, we all need healing of some kind or the other. Lord, and you've come like the good physician you are to do surgery on some of us, perhaps. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you're thinking, man, God's dealing with me in this area. I know there's something I'm, I need to, to let go of or to lay down. Jesus had not come to hurt you. Maybe like, like a cancer or a tumor. Some stuff's just got to go. Otherwise, it brings death. What would you give us the courage now to respond to you in light of who you are, how you leverage your authority on our behalf? Lay your life down. 
here today and you're saying, man, there's something in my life, something I need ministry for, some area I know I need to surrender to the authority of Jesus. If that's you, would you just raise your hand right now? Listen, God knows it anyway. Raise your hand right now. Lord, we just, with our show, show of hands, a show of surrender, we just acknowledge who you are. Lord, I thank you for these and with the honesty and the courage just to say, I need help. What do you come to help with our problem? Jesus, thank you for doing that. Being our Savior and our Lord and our King, I pray for that healing, that area. As you perhaps remove something, Lord, I pray that you would rush in, flood that area with your grace and your love, presence and nearness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Pastor Corey, would you come close this? Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.